Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something, people. I wanna give a shout out to uh, my newest sponsor. It's called Blowfish for Hangovers. And I'm gonna tell you, this stuff, this stuff is a lifesaver. Just think after a big night of partying, just wake up, drop two blowfish tablets in water, and drink it up. It's super easy, it tastes great, and it's recognized by the FDA, so you know it works. So here's what you do. You can go to fourhangovers.com. That's F-O-R hangovers.com. That's right, F-O-R hangovers.com. And use the promo code Cooper, my last name. Put in Cooper, and you get 20% off your order. Or just, just look for them at the Pain Reliever Isle of CVS. And if you hate being hungover, you got to check out the uh, Blowfish because the stuff works. And I know firsthand because I used it after uh, a few weeks ago after a Labor Day party. So go check it out. Go to fourhangovers.com and use the promo code. Anyway, we have a great show today. I'm excited. I, I saw my guest. He had a picture on Facebook with my good friend Rich Redmond. And I said, man, I got to get that guy on my show. So I sent him a message and he got back to me. And then I had Rich text him and it all worked out. And my guest is Billy Burnett. How you doing, Billy? Good. How you doing, Steve? Good. I'm just chilling. How's, how's, how's Nashville? Are you down there in Nashville, right? Everything's good. I think that product will do good down here in Nashville because these people like to drink a lot. I know. I, I've seen some of the pictures, uh, like Rich Post, and uh, it's it's quite yeah. a party city down there. Yeah, it is, especially downtown. So now, but it's a fun town. So now, now you 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 grew up down around that area, right? I was born in Memphis. I mainly grew up in L.A. And now. Okay. And I came back to Nash. I came back to Memphis when I was about eighteen to work with uh, Chip Stone, and so I worked with him for a while, and then moved to Atlanta for a while, then moved to back to Nashville. So I was here in Nashville in like '72, but this time I moved back here in like '93. And I had a lot of friends down here anyway, and I was, I was kind of dabbling in country music before. I mean, it was. You know, my music's always been kind of on the fence anyway, so it's like, you know. Now, your career is pretty fascinating. You started recording and singing at a really young age. How did it all happen? Well, my dad was in it. My dad was Dorsey Burnett. My uncle, Johnny Burnett, had um, had started. They were the early pioneers in Memphis of uh, rockabilly music. In fact, my cousin Rocky... Um, and myself were born a month a month apart. So they wrote this song called Rockabilly Boogie back when we were born, and that name kind of was stuck with like you know the the genre of music kind of made it famous. So wait a second. So so you're the the term rockabilly. Your father and uncle dubbed, and you're the Billy in rockabilly. Yeah, that's amazing. They wrote a song called Rockabilly Boogie. <laughs> Because I always wondered how that term started, because it's such a different thing. Yeah. And so, so you're, so of course you had to go into the music then, because you're part of the rockabilly. Yeah. So I cut my first record in 1960 with uh, James Burton and Joe Osborne and uh, Glendy Harden, who were Rick Nelson's band at the time, and later became Elvis's band after Scotty and Bill, I think. So, so how old were you when that happened? I was seven. Now, I was seven when it was with Dot Records. I did a Christmas record. It wasn't like I started when I started recording. I stayed a recording artist. It was like little um, during the summer. I'd work some, you know, and do some stuff. But it was always in my blood. I always wanted to do it. Um, I, then later, I cut a record. Years after that, when I was about eleven, I cut a record for Herb Albert um, and Jerry Moss. They had this little label called A and M at the time. I say little because it was so small that me and my little brothers licked the stamps on records <laughs> and sent it out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And, and, no, go ahead. And the song was a Doctor Seuss song, so it was. Uh, and then I started getting a little more serious about it. I would, I would cut most. Uh, do some stuff during the summer. I uh, went on the road with Brenda Lee. It was my first start when I first started touring. I was about thirteen. So what's that like? And I was uh, 
Pardon? What's that like? You're 13 and you're on the road. I mean, most kids are in school and you're out traveling around. I mean, you must have seen a lot and learned a lot at that time because and it's such a young, impressionable age. It's like it's like when we start getting rowdy, you know, like that age. What was that yeah. like being 13 or on the road? Did you really see a lot? Did you really think you grew up a lot? Yeah, of course I learned a lot. It was it was a big show. It was she had a big band of casuals. So it'd be the casuals would do a little, um, do a few songs, and I'd come out and I'd do about 15 minutes, and we'd have an intermission, and uh, Brenda would come on. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I just saw the uh, Beatles movie last night, and that was 1966, when they went over there, because they were in the hotel that we were staying at when, uh, when I was over there with uh, Brenda, and I just saw that movie last night, eight days a week. How was it? Great. Fantastic. I'm a huge Beatle fan, so, you know, it was just uh, fantastic. So so you're touring with her, and you're singing, and now I know you you eventually self-taught your, yourself the guitar. When did you decide you wanted to start playing the guitar, and, and was it easy for you to pick up because you were around music so much and you know you had it in your blood because your father was a performer I mean what made you decide to say I want to start playing uh, the guitar I just you know they were just all over the house you had, you had a few guitars laying around and it was like I couldn't you know help but start playing I think I maybe had a couple of lessons in fact me and my cousin did have a couple of lessons down at a place called Wallach's Music City in um, Hollywood and um uh, have like just two lessons just to learn a couple of basic things and then I was off you know so played all the time and then when I got a little older I would skip school go to the beach take my guitar with me and and uh, and then I put put together a band and started playing but uh, soon as and then writing then I started writing a few little things and uh, about a week well, I had I had a couple of record deals in between there, when I was um, I don't know in my teens. I just kept cutting records. I was Warner Brothers for a while, and cut. Um, I turned down doing a song called Wendy because <laughs> I thought it was too bubblegum. I wanted to rock more, you know. Right. So I ended up a week out of high school. My dad took me down and introduced me to Chip Smallman, and I went down there to cut for Columbia Records. And uh, doing records ever since then, and you know, had a um, it's kind of hard in those days. I mean, my records were kind of all over the place. I didn't know where to where to land. Really, I was. Um, in hindsight, I, you know, I wish I would have kind of stayed with my rock band, but I went with Chips, and it was like they had an incredible band down in Memphis that had got so many hits. They had just got through doing. Uh, Elvis on that uh, Suspicious Minds and In the Ghetto and Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield and I loved all those records um, The Box Tops um, The Letter you know the song The Letter so it was a pretty exciting place at the time Memphis was like really rocking so it was a lot of fun How are you learning your writing style? I mean you know I know you've, you've written for a lot of people but at, at a young age I always, I'm always fascinated when I talk to uh, people who started writing, you know, songs when they get out of high school or college, because at that point, you know, we're not, we're, we're young. We don't, we don't know, I mean, that much. And, you know, you got to figure out what, who's going to convey to, how would you write a song back then? Would you just sit there and write the music first or the lyrics or how? I write some by myself. Yeah, I write both music. I, whenever I got an idea, I just kind of wrote whatever was on my mind, you know, and, and do what anybody does when they write songs. You look for that idea and that melody and hope it all clicks. And, uh, you know, it was a part of the thing down there when I, Memphis and Nashville was a lot different than LA because you kind of wrote you kind of wrote every day, you know, you'd have a, a, you know, one of the guys, Chips had a bunch of writers, had Mark James down there who wrote Suspicious Minds, who wrote Hooked on the Feeling, uh, Johnny Christopher's a great writer, you had Dan Penn and Spooner Oldham, and Chips was a writer himself who wrote uh, 
you know, they were recording Aretha Franklin and all this great music was coming out of there. So that was, that was really great. And then I went to, uh, I went back to LA, um, and kind of got back into the scene there and put together a band, started doing some records. And then before I knew it, I had a lot my, um, right after my dad passed away, he passed away in 79. I had a, a good friend of his that worked in a record company that said, you should put together a rockabilly band and uh, do some of that kind of music. So I did that and was successful at it. We had a top 10 album in, in LA and New York and went on tour with Steve Forbert, did a national tour. Um, and the record had pockets where it was doing good. It didn't do great, but it was like, I was told at the time rockabilly music wasn't going to happen again. And then all of a sudden, you know, like three or four months later, the Stray Cats come out with a song. I think my dad had two rec songs on that record. Okay. So it was funny. But, but uh, in the interim of that, I um, just kept doing records, you know. What was the music scene like in L.A. in like 79? Because I've always heard it, went, it goes in pockets, you know, and there was the clubs. I mean, was there a lot of innovative new stuff happening? I mean, you moved back here and you, you said Rockabilly, you know, you and then Stray Cats, but what was the overall scene when you moved back here? Because I know it was before the glam metal hit, but was L.A. a good scene for an original act? It was a great scene. I mean, it was like the, you know, 1980. So it was like, they thought my music was more punk than anything. In fact, I opened for the Pretenders and was gonna do a world pretender tour. And that kind of fell apart because I think the guitar player passed away at the OD or something. And then I had a problem. I'd walk through a window and cut my legs. So the little downtime we I had there. Uh, then I got that, got that fixed and went on. And uh, I went back to Nashville, cut another record under my contract that I had to Bill and and did that and I was nominated uh, for Best New Country Male Vocalist in 1985 uh, for the MCA records I think and then I was I was in another band called The Zoo that Mick Fleetwood had put together Mick Fleetwood and Lindsey Buckingham in like 1983-84 wanted me to go to New York with them to do Saturday Night Live so I did that and so all of a sudden I was in, and with those guys, it was like we did, that was, Lindsay actually got me in the band and I ended up staying, once I joined Fleetwood Mac, I was there almost nine years. Right, how, now how did, you, was, how did you meet Lindsay and Mick? I met Mick first at a Dick Clark 25 year um, anniversary show. And, um, then I met uh, then I met Lindsay one night at the at the beach. They said, told me to come down to Malibu to have dinner with. Me. So I went down and uh, they said want to join a band. They wanted to put together another little kind of party fun band. So we put this band at first. It was called the Cholos, and they later changed to the Zoo. But that was Mick and myself and a couple other players: uh, George Hawkins, uh, Kenny Gradney from Little Feet. We had a really good band. Um, then one day I was I was uh, in the studio with Roy Orbison and I get a call from Mick and he says, uh, "Hey, we need you to join the band." And I said, "Hey, what?" Yeah, I mean, were you? Oh, go ahead. He said, "He said I said when?" And he said, "Tomorrow," because I guess him and Stevie had just got into it and they needed to. They were already in pre-production for the Tango in the Night. So I joined the band. Me and Rick Vito joined the band that uh, that very next day. It's it's funny, Rick Vito. I know his brother Mark because he used to own a comedy. Oh, really? He used to own a comedy club at the Jersey Shore, and I performed there in like 1989. And I remember he had talked about his brother being a musician and Fleetwood Mac thing. Really? So it was, yeah, it was funny because, uh, yeah, I knew Mark forever. We used, you know, he, he had that club, but he had said his brother, who is, they have a very, they have a 
very striking uh, resemblance. They look very much. You could tell they're brothers. But yeah, I remember. Uh-huh. I remember. I was like, man, because back then, you know, we were just guys in the Philadelphia area, and we we're like, and you know, Fleetwood Mac. I mean, legendary band. We we're like, oh my god, we were like so pumped that his brother was joining the band. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, I never met his brother. I don't think. He he stayed he stayed in New Jersey a lot. He was he was uh-huh. he was a Jersey guy. So now, but when when you met them, you know, when I mean when you when they asked you to join, you had a you, you had a lot going on. You had a lot on your plate. And I read somewhere you, where you decided, you know, you would much rather go on a big tour with than you know play club dates. And as you said, I read said you get back in the trenches. When they tell you you're going to join the band, did you? already know a lot of their songs or did you sit there and go I gotta learn a bunch of tunes or just because you've been a musician for so long did you just pretty much know how to play the songs you know a couple of them we did in our band the zoos so I did know them and that was uh, before I joined the band we did a lot I did a lot of stuff with Christine and with Stevie and we all just started hanging out together, you know, it was part of that family, it was just kind of a big family, you know, so, um, once I joined the band, we we had plenty of time to rehearse, we'd take each song and do a couple at a time, and before you knew it, we were back to, uh, it was good because Rick and I could play the parts that, uh, you know, there was two or three guitar parts on the record, so it was good that there was two of us, we cover a lot of ground, and we stuck to the, uh, we stuck to playing the, the hits like they were, were on the records, you know. So I think we brought more to the people of the record than even like when Lindsay was with the band, who created the stuff, you know. Now, when you sit there and you're finally going to start the tour, what's going through your mind? I mean, you're, you're going into everybody, everybody who's alive knows who Fleetwood Mac is. And you're, you're, yeah. you know you're going to be going into wherever you're going to go, you're sure it's going to be sold out because they're a huge band as a guitarist and as being part of that were you excited were you a little nervous because it's going to be such a huge crowd and you know how people may judge you know fans you know how fans are they're like oh wait this is yeah you know we we didn't know what to expect to be honest steve we kind of just um we had you know we joke about us getting jousted around the theater or <laughs> you know the arenas where we were playing but it was like uh, it was so big it was like the circus taking off you know it's like uh, a lot of trucks a lot of buses we had a private jet you know it was like uh, it, it, it was life changing overnight you know life changing situation because we actually became members of the band I had to get out of my uh recording contract with MCA at the time and Mike Curb was gracious enough to let me out and uh, it was um, we were off and running why did you have to get out of your recording contract just because it was a conflict of interest or I mean you're in a band yeah but- they well, they wanted me to join the band you know and I think we were doing uh, we were before we left or right after we got back from our first leg of the tour we put out a greatest hits album and did a uh, that's when we cut As Long As You Follow and some other song. I can't remember which one was I know. But, um, yeah, it was like they wanted, wanted me to be a you know full part of the band. I mean, once we got started, the band was really rocking. We did, uh, I don't know how many, world, three or four world tours with them. Um, in 90, when we put out our first full album, Behind the Mask, it was... Um, that was a big tour. I mean, uh, we did 10 dates at Wembley Arena, Arena and then sold out Wembley Stadium, which was like 127,000 people at the time. So it was a really big tour. And I think it, it surprised a lot of people that we could take a, um, a band so big and replace somebody and, you know, go so almost unnoticed, you know. It was like... Uh, and I was I was a big fan of Lindsey Buckingham's. I mean, he got me in the band. I was I was a huge I was the biggest Fleetwood Mac fan in the world. So it was um, kind of crazy that that happened. What's it like playing in front of one hundred and 
20,000 people. I mean, the energy must almost sweep you off the feet. I mean, do you focus? You probably can't focus because you just look out and you probably see uh, just a sea of people. How do you play in front of that? And do you, how do you monitor what you're playing? Because I'm sure there's so much noise. And a band like Fleetwood Mac, people are probably singing the lyrics and people know this stuff. I mean, what is, if you could explain the feeling of playing with one of the biggest bands ever in front of 120,000, what could you give as a sentence or two to explain the feeling you had? Oh, it's an incredible feeling. The, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very electric, uh, very exciting. Um, the energy is unbelievable, you know, because you do have that a little nervous energy every time you go on, you know, no matter, you know, who you are, but it's the same. It's not really, to me, that big of a difference of playing the Ryman or playing the stadium, you know, or, 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 or a stadium. It's not really, really not that much difference. I mean, there's a, those big places are big and they're kind of, you can get, the sound's always different in all of them. I mean, um, I did six years with John Fogarty and we did a lot of theaters, which I really like doing that. But over in Europe, he does big, you know, we did big festivals over there, you know, with, uh, you never know, a couple hundred thousand people at a time, you know. Now, when you were touring the world with Fleetwood Mac, what were, could you tell a difference in the fans and the different places you were? Were, you know, was there any fans that were more appreciative you know, like they always say, you know, if you go and play in Japan, the fans are crazy. They just, they're, they, it's like worshiping. What were some of the, like, what were some of the cool places you played that the fans were just more than what you would expect? I would have to say that Philadelphia is probably one of the ones that they most, uh, probably one of the loudest and always has been a crowd like that for the big rock and roll bands, you know. Um, I mean, there we. When I joined the band, the wall had just come down. In fact, the first time we went over the wall was still up. And when the wall came down, Fleetwood Mac played some places where people had never seen a rock band before. So that was pretty exciting to be able to play for some people that had never experienced that before. You know. Now, when you're on such a, a big tour. What do you do in your spare time? Do you sightsee or do you have to worry because, you know, you have a sound check that later in the day? I mean, it must be, you know, and could you get on around? Our days off, on our days off, we used, you know, I used to walk a lot, you know, to exercise. So that was my thing, is walking around and looking at the city and checking it out, you know. So I just like to walk for for hours, just walking around, checking out the city. That night, the band would get together sometime and go out to dinner or, a couple of us would, you know, whoever was going out to dinner, we'd go out to dinner and do that thing. And uh, it was pretty much still a party band when I was in it. <laughs> yeah. You know what amazes me? I always think about when I talk to musicians who have, who have been on tour and, you know, and these big places. I always think, just think, if cell phones were around then, just think how big your photography collection would be and all the stuff you had because you know back then if you forgot your camera you're shit out of luck <laughs> you know what I mean you can't take pictures yeah. but now it's yeah. like and like because I know you were recently in Europe do you take a lot of pictures and document your tours just to remember them I don't I wish I was better at documenting I've taken a lot of tour I mean I've taken a lot of pictures but I'll be putting out a book um, sometime next year and uh, it's just a lot of pictures of my dad and uncle and myself and the touring and, you know, there's a lot of pictures you gather on the way to people. And what's great about Facebook is I've had so many people send me pictures that I've never seen before, you know, of uh, us on stage or my, with somebody, you know, or it's great, you know, it's, it's a great uh, thing to have. I mean, the social network and you, know, you get all this stuff that you'd probably never see again if it, if it wasn't nothing running you know right now now when you uh, what was I going to say oh when you were working with Fleetwood Mac were you also still writing songs for other people a lot yes now how do they find well, you I was with, 
while I was with Fleetwood Mac, I think I had a, a I had a hit by Ray Charles at the time, which was a country hit. And uh, he later cut that song, Do I Ever Cross Your Mind with Bonnie Ray on the Genius Loves Company album. And I had had a hit with uh, Greg Allman in a song called Can't Get Over You of him as a solo artist. And um, had a single by Cher, had a bunch of stuff, had a bunch of stuff as a writer while I was with them. Uh, because I just wrote a lot before I joined them. I was writing, writing a lot for Chrysalis in, the, in L.A., and I um, just wrote with all kinds of different people. But I was just kind of at that time in my life where I did a lot of writing. How do they... And they set me up with a lot of great writers. So, And I always had a record deal during that time, so I was writing for myself, but people would, you know, would, would take the songs and cut them off my records a lot of the times, you know. I mean, I had anybody, everywhere from uh, Jerry Lee Lewis to Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn and Tammy Wynette, Rod Stewart. Um, a lot of different people cut the songs over the years, so I've been very blessed. Bully Nelson, uh, George Strait, we just had a George Strait real big hit not too long ago, so I've been very blessed when it comes to that. How do they find you? Like, I mean, did they sit there and go to the record company? Like you said, you're writing for Chrysalis. Did they go and say, we need someone to pen this kind of song? And then Chrysalis looks at their roster of writers and say, okay, Billy can do this. Or does the artist actually say, I like Billy's writing style. I want him to write a song. How do you get in? And it's a, it's a, a very impressive array of, of stars you're writing for. How do you get that relationship with them? And how do you get that gig? Well, it was like the only only time I wrote for a specific project was we wrote a song for Roy Orbison, and we wrote it thinking of him and mine hitting those high notes and stuff. And it was a song called "All I Can Do Is Dream You." In fact, I was in the studio with Roy when I got the call from Mick to join Fleetwood Mac, so that was kind of a special day. But um, yeah. Um, the one we wrote for Roy, a lot of times we just write item and some artists would get it and just, you know, we had people at the publishing company taking the songs around and, and plugging the songs, you know, for you. So it was professional songwriters and people that <clears throat> professionally went and had them placed, you know. So so what, when did you leave Fleetwood Mac? And then, I mean, how that, what all happened? It happened... Uh, 1995, almost on the button. It was it was that year, New Year's Eve of 1995, I think. Um, I I kind of heard it was coming. In fact, I had left the band. I had a two album deal with Warner Brothers. Was part of my deal with them to after Fleetwood Mac was went on hiatus. I was going to do a solo record. So at that time, I was uh, at that time. Rock music wasn't doing that well. It was really weird. The country scene had blown up into this big, giant business with Garth and everybody. So I had been in that world. So I went back um, to Nashville. I moved back to Nashville in 93 and started that. And then we put together another version of Fleetwood Mac at the time, Christine. There was one part of Fleetwood Mac where there was only four of us. It was Christine, myself, Mick Fleetwood and uh, John McVie. And then Dave Mason and Becca Bramlett joined the band. We did an album. More album, Christine was still in the band, and she wouldn't tour. So we did that last tour in like 94, 95. And uh, in fact, I, I kind of put together the inauguration for uh, uh, Gore lived in Nashville here, the Gores. So... I was out there with John Kay and some other people playing like a the welcome thing, you know, for them. So they came in and uh, Al Gore said, why don't you put together something for the, uh, for the inauguration? So I got the managers together and put it all together. And then I ended up not doing it because they wanted Lindsay. Stevie asked me if Lindsay would do it to... Because um, he was one of the writers on the song or did it originally. And I would, I would do that song every night, Don't Stop. In fact, we did it, 
when George Bush Sr. was down, we did an ATV convention, and they asked us not to do that song at the time because it was like a song opposing the other party, you know, which the son was part of. So, but we did it anyway. <laughs> we did it anyway that night. But uh, uh, that's when they put together the dance, and it was all something that I think they'd been just offered this uh, large amount of money to do the video, the dance, and do the tour. So, and that was a big tour for them. So when you left, I mean, was were you guys all cool? I mean, was it was it good? It was cool, yeah. We, in fact, Mick and I just had a band together not too long ago, like five or six years ago. So I still play with them every now and then, and uh, I just saw them all while they were in town, and everybody, you know, we all get along still. Yeah, there was it was just you know part of the business, you know, no. of them, you know, putting together that thing, and I, I had left the band anyway I mean you know it was just something where I had, I wanted to get out on my own and do that thing but right after Fleetwood Mac back uh, Brad Blunt and I did a record called Beck and Billy uh, and uh, it was fun it was you know just kept on going like you know we usually do and um, making music how do you shift gears I mean like because you, you've done all, you, you, you play you write and you play different styles of music how do you shift gears? Like, you know, well, you go from Fleetwood Mac, and then you, you go with you and Beckham, and then you play different styles. Is it, and, and this is when you play and also write, is it sometimes you, you sit there and you're just in a mood to do this certain type of music? I would think, though, because when you play different styles and you as you write for different styles, it probably depends on your mood. And I know, like, for me, when I listen to music, sometimes I'm, I'm in a mood to listen to some bands. And then, like six months later, yeah. I can't stand that band. I was sitting there, like, I was talking to my friends. I love Queen. But yeah. Right now, if I hear Queen on the radio, I turn it, and I don't know why, except for Fat Bottom Girls. I but do you, when you're writing, and yeah. that's me as a listener. When you're writing and you're playing, do you go through that? And do you sometimes sit there and go, "Shit, I can't go to this because I want to do this." I mean, oh how- yeah, it's definitely a. Uh, either where it can burn you out and there you know you don't want to hear anything for a while you know when you're just in it all the time and you know when you're on I, I like being on the road when you're on the road you kind of go into autopilot you know it's like once you got the show down you know it and you do it every night it's uh it becomes you know just part of your everyday thing you know and I've done some touring I did a tour with Bob Dylan that was very that was a lot of fun learned a lot of songs in a short period of time. Um, I, I did like almost six years with John Fogarty, and he was one of my favorites. So I've been, I've been really blessed to be able to work with some of my heroes and some of my mentors, you know. Now, you also did some acting. How did that come about? And I know you've also done some soundtracks, but you, I looked at your IMDb. You've been in like six movies. Did you want to be an actor? Did yeah. You, did someone like you and say, hey, Billy, we like your you music? You know what it was, it was funny, the whole time I lived in Hollywood, I think I went on a couple of interviews, just from people, just from, I had a, I had a lot of songs in movies, you know, at the time. But um, I moved to Nashville, and they asked me to do this movie about a, a rockabilly singer, or like the all of the postman always rings twice. It was a, um, it was a Roger Corbin film. And uh, I had never done any acting in them. They, you know, I had to, my first part was the lead role in this uh, <laughs> kind of drifter, <laughs> drifter movie of this guy that, you know, I did I did an album and some of it wasn't released, but I got to do it in the movie, you know, so it was really, uh, really a cool thing. And I loved the process. So I did, I did, I did, yeah, about five or six movies after that. Now, now, how is it comparing, you know, you, you know, you're a guy who's played live in front of thousands and thousands upon thousands, millions of people. And, you know, and so you're a showman at heart and you, as we call it, you have the chops. But what's it like when they sit there and go, okay, there's a camera just on you, do this, and someone's telling you, I mean, how did you, how did you adapt to that? And did you think 
when you look, I don't know if you've watched them, but did you think you were, did you think you did a good job in your acting or is, or is there something where you thought you may have been able to improve it more? Let's put it this way. When I saw the movie the first time, I said, I've seen a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't too bad. But learning that I, was, I had kind of a head start because they got me a coach, acting coach, to go through the script about a month before the movie. So they prepped me really good. And and I was good at learning my lines from learning, I guess, you know, songs and stuff. So I knew my lines and got to hit you, Mark. There's a lot more to it than just acting. You know, there's all this other stuff that goes into it. But I love the process and I love learning it. So it was a lot of fun. I hope to, uh, I've written the treatment on a couple of things that I want to go out to Hollywood and see if I can get a couple of these things started, you know. Now, would you star in them, or is this something you want to get in screenwriting, too? Yeah, it's something that I've had an idea for um, for a while. It's just an idea about, uh, yeah, I, well, I would like to be in it, but you never know. But it's a treatment I've got, and me and this producer friend of mine have uh, had the idea for several years. And as soon as I get some time, I'm going to go out there, we're going to write a treatment. And, you know, not, not, not the screenplay, but just the treatment, so we can turn it over to some professionals who write screenplays, you know. Cool. Now, now, now you said, you know, you were working with Bob Dylan. How did that, how did that come about? And as a singer songwriter, that must be one of the most um, complimentary things you can do because he's such a legend. I mean, did he know of your work or how did that happen? Yes, actually he came by, um, I was writing for Barbara Orberson at the time. I met Barbara when I was working with Barbara and Roy and Roy had passed away. So, you know, they they had that Wilbury connection. And uh, he came by one night and he said, man, I got your record in my uh, my truck. It's really good. So months later, I got a call from uh, his bass player and uh, said, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And I said, yeah, man, that sounds great. You know, play, you know, going to do a little touring with Bob Dylan, so... I did it. I mean, you know, how can you turn that one down? <laughs> so, so what's it like touring with him? I mean, what's it like touring with a master? I mean, and you know, you have to, as you said earlier, you consider yourself blessed. I mean, you figure with, with Fleetwood Mac, Dylan, and Fogarty, I mean, they're, it doesn't get much bigger than that, especially in American music. Yeah. I mean, what is it like when you sit there and go, holy crap, I'm, I'm, I'm with Bob Dylan? And, you know, it's, you can't explain what Bob Dylan has meant to music and I'm sure it means so much more to a singer-songwriter like you. I mean, what are your feelings? Yeah. What are your feelings when you sit there and you, you go that, like when you're sitting there going, oh my God, I'm with Bob Dylan. What goes through your mind? Well, at that time, it was a lot of work for me to learn a lot of songs and I learned them all the wrong way because they sent me the records I should have and they've all changed since years ago he's changed a lot of them up so it was a lot of uh, a lot of woodshed meaning staying in my room learning these songs and I've got I got a little tinge of carpal tunnel trying to learn all these songs <laughs> all at once and then I'd get five new ones a night to learn that I got about 20 minutes before we went on so it was like you know you know the songs a certain way but then you have to learn them another way and it's uh it was kind of tricky, but I, I really did love it, and I loved. Um, I got into his, you know, music more than ever then because I had to learn it. Once you get there, you know, to that point of it, and really realize what that's about, it's. Uh, he's uh, he's one of my favorites, you know, like a lot of people's. How how long did you tour with him for? I just toured with him for a couple of months. A couple of months, and then right after that, Barbara kind of got me out of that. Barbara Orbison, she's passed away a couple of years ago now. She kind of got me out of that because I wasn't writing, and I, I never wrote too much on the road. So I was one of her, I had a co-publisher deal with her. So right after that, right afterwards, uh, Jeff Kramer, um, uh, Bob Dylan's manager, called me and asked me if I would want to join a band uh, but it'd be good if I got joined up with John Fogarty and put together a band friend so a friend of mine and I um, George Hawkins and I flew out to LA 
and we practiced our uh, harmonies on the phone, and we kind of had, you know, had our thing together and got the gig. And now it must be weird going from Dylan, who is more folky, to to uh, Fogarty, because Fogarty has such that uh, a distinct sound. Did you have, so you had to yeah. learn all those songs? I mean, you, you got to you've been learning a lot of songs in your lifetime that aren't yours. Besides writing them, do you sit there and go, "Oh my God, I got to learn all these songs," or you're excited because you're a fan of Fogarty's? I'm I was a fan. In fact, I I've done a lot of his songs in my high school bands and whatever you know. I mean, who hasn't played Proud Mary or um, um, Green River, or Bad Moon Rising, you know, all them things, you know, so it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And of course, both of those guys like to rehearse a lot, so you're kind of ready before you hit the road, you know. So with your music, I know you recorded a, a live album in Manhattan. Yes. Now, now, how did that come about? And then, was it you were getting back to rockabilly again? I know it's a very revered CD. I, I call them albums still, but some people call them CDs. Uh, how did that whole thing come up about? And how did you choose where to record it? It was uh, it was a live record. I was on the road with Bob at the time, and I used his drummer and my two guys from LA. It was, uh, we did it in a church in Manhattan. Um. I think a church called St. Peter's or something. Yes, yeah, St. Peter's. Uh, and we did the album in a church, and it was um, it was wild. We'd, it was live, too. There was no overdubs on it, so that would kind of freak me out a little. I like to, like, kind of fix vocals and do this and that, but uh, that album was totally live. <laughs> when you say live, was there people in the church watching you, or did you guys just no. play? You just... No, no, no. It was just us. Now, how did you come up it with that idea? The, it was kind of like the rest to disc. It was, they only went on this one special kind of tape. So the quality of it was live. You know, there's no overdubs. So everything you do, every, you, you couldn't fix anything because it was mics and it was going to one uh, stereo tape, you know. How did you how did you choose a church to do it? I mean, whose idea was it? Did you sit there? Did you always want to record something like that, or did someone suggest it to you? They had done a lot of jazz, a lot of orchestrated music. I was the first. They were kind of experimenting with me on how that music would sound there, you know. And uh, we had a lot of fun doing that. I did it for Chesky Records, and they do a lot of like direct to disc records and stuff like that. Now, then down the road, you uh, hooked up with a guy named Sean uh, Sean Camp, and you did a, a bluegrass yes. album. How, how did how did yes. how do you, how do you find someone you're going to collaborate? Do do people approach you, or how did you sit there and pick this guy, Sean? And I guess you did. It was no. called Bluegrass Alice's. What happened there? Well, um, Sean and me started out writing about the year two thousand, and just somebody had an idea of the. Um, David Ferguson, who was Cowboy Jack. Cowboy Jack was a producer at Sun Records, and he had done everything from producing Johnny Cash to U2 and everybody, you know. So um, we were playing with him, and Ferguson said one day, you guys should do an album called The Bluegrass Elvis. So we did it. <laughs> and we used the best bluegrass players in Nashville. And there's, there's some great ones here so we were in the place right place and uh, it was a good record we that was kind of done pretty live too we didn't overdub on that that was uh all you'd hear on that is, is that as it's going down so bluegrass is a is uh, i have friends who play bluegrass and bluegrass is a really good it's it's a great sounding uh genre why don't you think it's become more popular in in America? I mean, it's like because it's it's good, it's clear, it's it's very musically inclined. You have to be a good musician. Why do you think it hasn't really? It, I mean, it's not like people aren't talking about bluegrass, but they're talking about you know some kind of crap music. Why do you think bluegrass is taken yeah. off? Why don't you? Why in your eyes? Why don't you think bluegrass has gotten the appreciation it should? And it's by the masses. I mean, the people who love it love it. But why do you think it hasn't got the appreciation? I think in some pockets of the U.S. it does. I mean, they have these big bluegrass festivals. In fact, my friend Sean, who we were just talking about, he's with the 
uh, Earls of Leicester right now, and uh, that's with um, uh, Douglas, um, um, Jerry Douglas. Um, so, and Alison Krauss, I think, just brought so much to that world. That album, uh, Raisin Sand, with that her and Robert Plant did, was so great. I'm not saying it's a totally bluegrass record, but it's uh, in that world, you know. Now, you also had a number one song in Norway? Yes, I, we had a song that was in the Eurovision Awards. Now, what's that and like? And it was a song called Butterflies. But what's it like to have a number one song in Norway? I mean, that, that's, that's probably like the most random thing. It's so cool. But when you're a kid, you probably never thought you'd have a number one song in Norway. Yeah. What happened there was just, there was this Norwegian artist. Um, I never can't pronounce her name. Tondi uh, Abarj or... Dom, Domli. Or something, you know. Dom, I have it written down here. Domli, and I'm guessing it's Abarj. Yeah, that's her, yeah. And... Um, Yeah, that was, a, that, that was a big song there. What happened there was he had the track already written and he played it for me while I was there. And then he called me. I was at the, um, he said, could you write me some words to this? I'm not happy with some of the words we got for it. So it was kind of half written. And uh, I kind of took it and rewrote it at the uh, Holiday Inn Airport Hotel as I was going back to the States. So I wrote it. And, you know, that one night I had some time off, you know, I had some time to spend, spending the night, I think, in London, leaving the next morning for uh, Nashville. So I wrote those words, sent them back to him, and he loved them, and they used them. So, so okay, so so you've written a number one song, and you've written for tons of people. Now, when you write for your, when you write a song, are there ones you write specifically for you, or do you write them and just think, if this doesn't fit me, someone else will write it? And are there any songs that you've written that someone else has recorded that you wish you personally had recorded? There's, well, I've just found an album. I've just finished an album like that. Like, I've never recorded uh, the Roy Orbison song that I wrote for Roy ever. All I Can Do Is Dream You. And I never recorded the uh, one that Ray Charles did. So I've done those two. And I did another one that uh, that was on Willie Nelson's last record called Crazy Like Me. I cut that on this record. And also I did Tear It Up on this record, which was on my live album, but I never do it. I've, it's been years since I've done it on a record, so I figured it was time to do that one again, you know. So so when you when you write so when you write the song for someone else, you're you're still allowed to do it then. I didn't know like I thought maybe if you wrote a song for someone else, they played it and you couldn't play it anymore. But whatever you write is yours then, and you can play it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Once they've been released, it's it's wide open. Anybody can come. Now, now, when did you... Yeah, that... When did you start recording this new album? I started this new album. It's, like, it's been a couple of years now, and I'm kind of just waiting on timing for the book and all, for all the stuff to all come out at once. It takes time to set up, especially if you're releasing them yourself these days, you know. You need to set up your publicity people and your promotion people and all that, you know. And there's still a couple of labels I'm talking to, so it's a time-consuming thing, and, and it takes forever to get anything done anymore. I remember when you can do a record one week and have it out the next, you know. It's a completely different ballgame now. Now, how many songs, when you, when you started on this project, how many songs did you think you would use and then how many songs did you end up using? And how do you as an artist choose what you think the song should? Like the Ray Charles one and, and the one from live. And, you know, those make sense because, you know, you want, have wanted to play them. But what's the process of choosing different songs so you sit there and have this, this CD album just as a tight, tight project? I just... This one's more like cutting the stuff that other people have done, and that's kind of more of stuff that I've wanted to do that's not, I've just never got around to it, or stuff I've done that didn't make the record before. But, you know, I'm my own boss now, so I can do, um, what's the beauty of these records is that I can do whatever I want on them, you know, and have that creative freedom to do that, you know. 
Now, how do you, how would you describe the style of music for this album that's coming out? Is it a, a bunch of stuff, or can you say it distinctly one thing? Because your music, you, you hit a lot of different genres. How do you market something like that? I mean, how would you say what, like if it was back in the day when we had record stores, when we had the, it was so fun to go into a record store, what section would this be in? Would it be in the rock? Would it be in the country? Where would it be? Like if, it, if someone was looking back in the day for the album you just recorded, where would we find it in the record store? Yeah, that's a good question. It's probably going to be, this one's probably going to be, well, it's a lot of rockabilly on it. And rockabilly is considered a, a music that's in the Hall of Fame, you know, in Nashville. Um, it's going to be a little rockabilly. Uh, um, some just rock and roll, a lot of it. And there's, I've, I've got two ballads on this record, so there's that too on this one. Now, how how would you describe in words what rockabilly is? I just just rock and roll, you know. To me, it is. And the, um, I mean, you usually have the slap bass. You know, I use a, sl- a stand up bass on my music and try to go for some of that original stuff. I've got a few things on the album that are kind of like that, and a few things that aren't. You know. Now you said you were recently uh, when I talked to you the first time on the phone. You were you have been in Europe. Now, how often do you tour and and do do you have a big following in Europe? I tour with a lot of I, I tour a lot of like uh, there's a lot of rockabilly festivals over there now, and uh, I'll do one in Spain and one in Italy and uh, uh, one in Sweden. Uh, well, I, I tour in Sweden with this band called. The Cadillac band. I'll I'll tour with them, and they'll bring over guests like me, and they'll bring over James Burton, and Tommy Allsup, and some of the older guys that have been around, and um, then they will bring. They have like five or six artists on their show that were famous in Sweden from pop rock bands, you know, over the years, and uh, I tour with them a lot, and I'm some of the uh, American guests. Now, you live in Nashville, and yes. you've been in along this business for a long time, and you've seen country, you know, from record. You've written for different country people. Has country changed the music in your eyes? Because I know some people who go country's different. Oh my god! Yeah. What? I mean, that's probably one of the most changing genres. I've never seen anything change like this. How has it changed I mean, in your eyes? What they call country now is like. I don't know, it's, it's gotten, it's really gotten different. I'm not saying it's bad, there's some really good stuff out there. Um, and some great artists out there. It's just, uh, it's changed a lot. But now it's kind of going, you know, it'll, it'll go, it, it comes and goes to this pop rock kind of thing, and then it, it'll go back to being traditional. There'll be somebody come along to where, um, is really traditional, then everybody will do traditional stuff, you know. So it's all it's all constantly changing. It always has. Now, in living in Nashville, do you go out a lot and jam? I mean, or you, or is that something where if you go into a club and there's, I mean, because you've been around for a long time and you work with so many great people and you've had such a great career, when you go out, like, do you know, like, if you, let's say you want to go and jam one night, do you know you can go to a certain place and just, they'll, they'll say, hey, coming up on stage. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of my friends that, that'll be playing a gig, and I know that when I come out to see them, I'll get up and sit in with them all the time, yeah. Now, do you show up with a guitar, or do you just use one of theirs, or I mean, you just show up and go... No, usually, like, when I play a gig, I'll have an extra guitar and amp there for any guests who want to get up, you know, sit in, because I like to do that anyway, so my thing's a little different, but there's a lot of bands that usually have an extra guitar amp there, or whatever, or I will take the guitar player that's playing with an artist and use his, you know. Now, are you still writing a lot these days? For other people? Not a lot. Not as much as I used to. I'm kind of, I used to have to do it every day, like when I was a writer for like uh, uh, Barbara, because I was a, like what you call a staff writer and 
and she wanted me working all the time. So I worked, I did it every day for a while, and I used to do it all the time. In, in L.A., I did it for a little while, too. And you get a lot done, you know. The more you write, the, you know, the better chance you got of getting that, that one, you know, good one. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, which we're all looking for all the time. So it's all different. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how, I mean, for you, what do you do next? I mean, you've done so much. You've been in the business. I mean, you recorded an album when you were seven. I mean, most kids can't even build blocks. Well, I guess an album. I just did a, that was just a single. It was more of a singles game back then. And what's funny about that is now it's a singles game all over again, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, what, what do you do? I mean, you, you, you've been in this business for so long. How do you constantly, you know, rejuvenate yourself? And, and, and you know, do you ever get tired I mean, you seem like you're on the road, you're producing, I mean, I mean, you're recording. Do you ever just sit there and go, man, it's time for me to retire, or is that something you'll never do? Probably something that I'll never do. I mean, you know, my health is good. Uh, um, I had an open-heart surgery about five years ago, so they said I'm good to go for about another 20 or more, you know? <laughs> That's good. But it's like... Uh, I, I was tired after this last European tour because there's a lot of traveling involved, you know. So I'm uh, good about that, but um, I'm writing a book too, so I'm kind of uh, thinking about a lot of things, what to put in the book and whatnot, and trying to get all this stuff together to come out all at once, you know. Is the book going to be a biography about your life? Yeah, well, it's going to be about my dad and uncle because a lot of people don't know about them. Um and what impact they had on just about the whole business, you know. Because they were the early pioneers of rockabilly. In fact, Elvis Presley used to hang out where they used to rehearse at. And um, they rehearsed in a place called the Lauderdale Courts, where Elvis lived, and they'd rehearse in the laundromat there. Oh, wow. In the laundry room. So there was a lot of history there. And my dad and... Uh, wrote a lot of the Rick Nelson hits. Uh, it's late. Leave what you say. Uh, produced Stevie Wonder on his first first record that he did. You know, one of those first records. So that would be a good book. And yeah, he he did a lot of stuff. So and it'll be about me joining the Fleetwood Mac bunch and some, some of the stories there. You know, so it should be a pretty wild book. Well, I want to thank you for coming back on. I'm coming on, not back on, coming on, because uh, I'm glad we got in Great, touch. Matt, what, part, what part of the country do you live, live in, Steve? I live in Burbank, California, right now. I love, I love it. I, I love it. it. I miss it. I, I miss the weather so much. Oh, it's been so wonderful, except this weekend it went up to 100 on Sunday, and we're like, we finally had a cool I week, heard. and you go, 100? It's Sunday. Gee, and, you know, it's like, it's October. I mean, it's almost October. So anyway, so how can people get in touch with you? Uh, I know you have your website is, uh, I believe. BillyBurnett.net. You can buy the records there. In fact, I've got two that are on there now. Um, and you can also get it at, get them at iTunes. So either one of them places. Are you on Facebook or Twitter? Yes, I'm on Facebook. Yes. Okay. And I'm on Twitter also, yeah. At Billy Burnett, but I don't use Twitter as much as Facebook. I hadn't figured that one out as much. Okay, well, but it's they're Billy Burnett people. It's B U R N E T T E. So check it out. Yes. So, so people, check out Billy Burnett. Go to his website, buy his albums, listen to his music. The guy's an innovator. He's been around. He's been around. He's worked with some of the biggest stars. So you got to check him out. Also, follow me on Twitter, people. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. You know, I'm always tweeting. I'm tweeting jokes. I'm having fun. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 550 episodes up there from musicians to actors to directors to writers. It's just you'll see a lot of people you recognize. And you can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. And if you want to hit me to get a certain guest, please hit them up. Also, I'm always sitting there. I'm, I'm, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Words with Friends. It's coopertalk1. Check out my pictures. Play me in words with friends. You might beat me, you might not. And don't forget my other website, StopTheSalt.com. Remember when I had that heart problem a few years ago? Well, I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. They're easy to make. There's no pictures to intimidate you, no long lists of ingredients. So go to StopTheSalt.com and buy it there. You can buy it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon, but if you buy it at StopTheSalt.com, I will sign it and I will 
make more money. And that's about it. Also, don't forget my new sponsor, Blowfish for Hangovers. If you're drinking too much, go to Blowfish for Hangovers. Use the, the website for hangovers. Use the word Cooper for 20% off. So check out Billy Burnett. Check out Cooper Talk. Keep listening. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week. Have a good weekend.